I want you to look at that picture that you have in front of you. Um, I loved this picture for our background because you see that the church is people. That's going to be very important as we look at our text today. So let's give our time to God, and I encourage you to pray with me. Ask God to teach you something, and then pray for someone else who you have a burden for in this auditorium. Just pray silently as I pray. God, this is your word, and we want to submit ourselves to it. And I pray that you would give us open doors. May there be an open door into the heart of each person here today, ready to receive your word and to put it into practice. Use your spirit to communicate your truth to our lives of where we need to go. Guide us as a church. May we as a church be submitted to you and be a benefit to our family, but also our town, for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. What is it that makes a church last? That's a question that we're going to look at today, and a question that I think is pretty important. First, though, we need to know what a church is, and so here's the working definition that I've used throughout this series. A church is God's people, which you see up there, God's people called out of death and into life, coming together to accomplish God's plan on earth. It's God's people called out of death into life and coming together to accomplish God's plan on earth, which is why we have local churches, because we're coming together. This week, I was reading the 50th anniversary memorial booklet of the Iowa Association of Regular Baptist Churches, which is what we are a part of. We associate with them. And in 1985, there was over 110 churches in the state, and each one of them had a picture, and they had to record their church membership. And the numbers were staggering to me. The amount of people in churches in the IARBC was incredible. Even our church reported a number of 60 members in regular attendance, which I don't think we have even today. And so those numbers were huge, but now next year we are approaching the, well, in two years we're approaching the 90th anniversary of our fellowship, and our fellowship is down to 94 churches. 15 are currently without pastors. Some churches haven't held on, and some are hanging on by a thread with a mere 10 to 20 in membership. So it got me thinking, because next year we are celebrating our 50th anniversary in this building as a church. And so we're celebrating that. The church has actually been established since 1960 is when it was officially established, so we missed it. And I want to celebrate it, so I had to pick a different date. <laughs> so 50 years in this church, we're celebrating what is St. Ansgar Baptist Church going to look like at its 90th anniversary? Will we reach it? That's a question I had. And that's a question we must look at. So what are the muscles that make a church last? You could also ask, what muscles make you last as a believer? Because the church is you. The Church of Philadelphia is estimated to have lasted almost 1,300 years. And I believe Jesus gives us in this text three muscles of a lasting church. And here they are. Muscle number one, they need an enlarged heart. They must be a loving church. A lasting church has an enlarged heart. It must be a loving church. Number two, they need plodding feet. They must be an enduring church. Number three, they need a strong hand. They must be a committed church. So let's look at these together. First of all, they need an enlarged heart. Philadelphia was a loving church. The word Philadelphia actually means brotherly love. And it received its name from the king of Pergamon because his brother was so loyal to him. And it was a city that had been plagued by earthquakes 
and it had actually been wiped out before the entire city had been leveled by earthquakes. And so people opted to live in the outskirts of the city instead of inside the walls. However, and you've probably seen this before, tragedy often brings people together, doesn't it? Isn't it amazing how a tragedy can happen and all of a sudden our political divides don't matter anymore? Have you noticed that? Or tragedy can happen and all of a sudden an entire community comes around and encourages. And that's what happened in this church. They began loving each other. Now, our physical hearts, here we got a picture for you. Our physical hearts have four different chambers. And in this text, I think we see four chambers of a biblically enlarged heart. Chamber number one is that they have a love from God. Do you notice verse 9? I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door to which no one is able to shut. I know you have little power. You have not denied my name. That's verse 8. Verse 9, though, says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have what? I have loved you. And so here, Jesus, through John, writes to the church, and he says, I'm going to make your enemies realize I love you. And if we want to have an enlarged heart, it has to start with love from God. God is the initiator, not the responder of a loving relationship. He's the one who initiates it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is love, and we love him because he first loved us. Have you ever read Song of Solomon? Maybe you've read through it and thought this is a little bit weird and a little bit odd. But watching the Song of Solomon, as the lady in chapter 1, she says, I am dark, she's timid, she's, uh, she's aware of how she is different from the other girls and is uncomfortable in his presence. And the king loves her well and welcomes her as she is. And as you go through the Song of Solomon, all of a sudden her love begins to blossom and she gets to a point where she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And isn't that where every single one of us want to be? We want to be known and loved. And in our text, God is the one who loves us and we respond. God's love is a giving love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son. So his love is a giving love. Secondly, God's love is a sacrificing love. While we were sinners, Christ what? Died for us. He sacrificed himself for us. And then God's love is also a limitless love. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from what? The love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We have to start with a love from God because I don't think you can endure the Christian life if you're trying to earn God's love. I've seen enough, I've seen enough Christians that um, they, they, their thought was that love had to be earned. And eventually they get in their 20s or 30s and they just get burnt out on it. They're like, I, can't, I, cannot, I cannot be good enough to earn God's love. And it's like, yes, that's the gospel. And if you want a church that lasts, you need a church that realizes their love from God. God loves you, church. God loves you. Secondly, though, we need a love for God. Chamber number two in our heart is a love for God. The church of Philadelphia loved Jesus. And they demonstrated it in two ways in verse 8. Go back to verse 8. It says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. 
The way that they demonstrated their love for God was that they kept His word and they honored His name. When you love someone, you care about what they have to say and you like their name. And the church that holds on is the church that is committed to keep and not just read or preach the word of God. Same thing for the believer. If you want to last, it can't just simply be hearing because it says we deceive ourselves when that happens. Jesus said that if you love me, you keep my commandments. And he promised that the one who hears the word of God and does it is like the person who's built on a rock. So when trials come, the house doesn't fall because they're built on the rock. And if you and I want to have a love for God, we've got to love his name, we've got to love his word. And we have to teach others to do that too, if they want to endure it. Chamber number three is a love for each other. A love for each other. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And I read in John chapter one, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become what? Sons of God, children of God. Okay, so if you're a son of God and I'm a son of God, what does that make us? Brothers, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ. And you see how over and over again, Paul says, hello, brothers. Hello, brothers and sisters. Greetings. There is a relationship that we have as part of the body of Christ. You and I are brothers. How many of you have always perfectly gotten along with your siblings? Never. How many of you expect to perfectly get along with everyone in the church? Okay. See here what matters? Have you ever been to a church where people didn't like each other? Have you ever not liked someone in a church? Be honest. Probably have. People that always sit on this side and always sit on that side, sometimes for a reason. Better not happen here. Come talk to me if you are. There's got to be love for each other though. The Bible says that every believer is a brother and sister to each other. And we may take that for granted, but I bet if you have a bad family relationship, being a brother and sister with other people in the body of Christ means a lot more to you than those of us who enjoy a fellowship with our families. So we have to have a love for each other. I don't think a church can last if they don't love each other. It's just, it's not going to happen. 16 times in the New Testament, we're told to love one another. And I've heard pastors jokingly say, I'd be an incredible pastor if it weren't for the people. And I laugh and I'm like, you wouldn't be a pastor if it weren't for the people. Like, that's kind of the point. That's like saying I'd be a great dad if it weren't for my kids. <laughs> that's not true. And you can't say I'd be a great brother and sister if it weren't for my siblings. Or I'd be a great church member if it weren't for the other church members. We have to love one another. And love, I read, covers a multitude of sins, which implies we're going to sin against each other sometimes. Don't try to go to a church where you always get along with everyone because you'll never find a church. Or you'll go there and ruin it if you find it. <laughs> you ever heard that saying, if you find a perfect church, don't go because you'll mess it up? That's just the reality because we're not perfect. Saul had no love for others and look at how history has treated him. Judas had a love only for filling his own pocket. But Paul and David both surrounded themselves with believers and they continue on as people that we look up to. I would not be where I am today if it weren't for other believers. I really mean that. I've had people call me out on stuff. I've had people sit me down. I've shared stories of what people have done in my life. If it were not for the brothers and sisters in Christ, I would not be where I am today. And we need each other. We need to love each other. A church that lasts is a church that loves each other. I had a negative example, but those are really easy to find. 
Like, you ever heard about the church that split because one person wanted Starbucks coffee and the other wanted Folgers, and it split the church? That happened. I think there's probably more going on. That's my opinion. I guess you get a negative and a positive. <laughs> That's what I get for moving from the notes. Let me point you to a positive example. We have college-age people here whose lives will never be the same because you have loved them. This is their fourth year of coming to and from Faith Baptist Bible College. I figure that they have driven between twenty to 25,000 miles in attending this church. Why? What is wrong with you? <laughs> Who does that? Why on earth would they do that? I think it's because they feel loved here. They feel cared about here. You've welcomed them into your homes. You've worked on their vehicles. You've filled up their tanks with gas. You've prayed for them. You've been interested in their lives. You've counseled them. You've let them serve alongside you and helped them to learn the ropes of ministry. And so they keep coming. What happens when all of us die? How will the church continue on? There's got to be a brotherly love that's passed down. By this will all men know that you're my disciples by your message. No, by your love for one another. We need a love from God. We need a love for God. We need to love each other. And fourth chamber is we need a love for the lost. A love for the lost. Jesus says, Behold, I have set before you an open door. I personally think that the open door is a reference to a gospel witness and opportunity. I once was challenged by someone to go and sit in a mall, and the mall was far away. And so I went and sat on the corner there of 218, and I sat and they said, Imagine every single person driving by or walking by with a line on their head going to hell. Going to hell, going to hell, going to hell. And here I sat for just 30 minutes, and I ended up in tears as I began to see all these people going in and out of Casey's, turning, rushing, some driving really nice cars, some driving beater cars, some driving big trucks, different people with families, single people by themselves, all just rushing about. And I began to view them not by the status of the car they drove, but by the destination of where they're headed to. And it changed my perspective. These people are lost. Many of them are lost. And a church has to have a love for the lost. The Engage Network, which my brother is a part of, one of the key things that has, has multiplied in their church is a heart and soul for the lost. And we've even seen that in our church where we're beginning to say we've got to be concerned about those who are headed to hell. We have to be to where we have them over to our house and we ask them the question, have you ever been born again? And they look at you and they say, have I been what? Have you ever been born again? What on earth does that mean? That's not a phrase that we use all the time. And we're, we're willing to go and have those uncomfortable conversations because we actually recognize people are headed somewhere after they die. Very, very practical example. What happens to a society who no longer values children? It's not just America. It's China. There was a one-child policy. And all of a sudden, it's really going downhill. Why? If you want to last, someone has to survive you. Right? Let me ask you this. Who spiritually is going to survive you? Who's your, who's your kid in the faith? Because if we're Christians, we have to pass that down to someone. And it can't just be our kids. We need to have a heart for the lost, a love for the lost. So I'm convinced that the open door was a gospel witness, and I may be speaking to someone today who has not walked through the door of Jesus. Remember, a door serves two purposes. One is to keep out, and the other is to let in. And in John 10, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. 
And in this text, Jesus says that he has the key, which implies that there's a lock as well. Listen, heaven is locked to all who try to come to heaven on their own good works. It's locked to all of them. There are different keys that I've seen. I've seen people try the key of infant baptism. But my Bible says Jesus is the door and that Jesus has the key. The key will not fit. You can try the key of being a good person. I talked to someone, shared the gospel with them, and it just broke my heart because I shared the gospel with them that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And they agreed and they agreed and they agreed. And then I said, how do you know where you're going to go when they die? And they said, I hope I'm going to get to heaven. I said, "Uh, you hope? Wait, what? Did you just miss it? It's Jesus Christ alone that gets us into heaven. Maybe maybe you try to, to keep all of the commandments. That doesn't work. How many of you have lied, stolen, cheated, lusted? That's not going to work. We have people who try to keep the sacraments. That's not going to work. All these are keys. But have you ever tried to unlock a door in the dark? I have. Over here at the church, uh, every once in a while the light goes out. Very seldom. It, it's lasted a really good long time. One time I was over here and the light was out. And, uh, you know, you can find the keyhole. And then I've got a, a keychain of just five or six different keys. And you're just like, Nope, that doesn't work. That one doesn't even go in. And we have different people trying different keys to get to heaven. But the Bible says, Jesus has the key. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A church that lasts is a church that holds, has an enlarged heart. They're a loving church. Number two, they have plotting feet. They have plotting feet. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. And it's to try those who dwell on the earth. He says, you kept my word about patient endurance. Plotting means to work hard and monotonously. It has the idea of doggedness. Have you ever seen this picture before? You know what what the story is? Aesop's fable, the tortoise and the hare, the rabbit and the bunny. If you've never heard this story, I don't know. You young people, if you haven't heard this story, here's what it is. A tortoise challenges a hare to a race. He says, I bet I can beat you to the pond. And the rabbit says, well, ha, yeah, right, I'm way faster than you. So the rabbit takes off. This is the Disney animated version. Rabbit takes off, and he gets so far ahead, he looks back, and he laughs at the turtle, and he decides to take a nap. And the turtle just step after step after step passes him, as he's taking a nap, and he beats him, beats him in the race. Two lessons that have been drawn from that. Number one is that people with great characteristics, people with great qualities, often waste them because they never focus. But the more common interpretation is slow and steady wins the race. You ever heard that phrase? Slow and steady wins the race. It's from right here. Philadelphia had little power. I think that if we were back in the time when Philadelphia was around, their pastor probably would not be asked to speak at the conferences. Their church probably wouldn't be well known. Their church probably would just have kept on going. Nothing big. Nothing flashy, but they just continued in the faith. They continued in love. The Church of Philadelphia refused to quit. An earthquake flattened the city and they rebuilt. A pandemic hit the world. Oh wait, that was our day, wasn't it? They built back up. Jews from the synagogue of Satan attacked them and they kept going. They didn't have power, but they could plod. Patient tells me it was a long trial and endurance tells me it was a hard trial. And I may speak to someone today who reads that line, and I've read it, and it says, I know that you have little power. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh, amen, that's me. I have little power. You're like, that is me. Then you have to realize that Jesus praises this church. There's no criticism at all in them. 
You may be facing a situation where you feel like you don't have enough strength to endure. I know a young woman in her 30s, and she's single, and she once told me a turning point in her life was when she turned her singleness over to God. And she would say, I can't imagine being single for the rest of my life, but I can imagine it for today. And I'll be faithful today. And she was just faithful with her singleness day after day after day. Years later, she's still not married, but her family did an exercise where they all praised equality of each other. And at the end of the day, she received the most glowing report. Recently, she had a truck and was driving home with a trailer and her trailer tire popped. No complaints. After that, she was driving trailer and her four-wheeler was on it and it fell off of her trailer <laughs> and banged up like crazy. No complaints. She had learned to endure difficulty. So when a pop tire came and her four-wheeler flipped, she goes, I can handle this one day at a time. One day at a time. So let me encourage you to continue in the faith. When I think of endurance, I think of someone standing in the rain, just taking the raindrops at the, as they pelt his body. But the Greek picture, I've not seen this movie, the Greek picture of patient endurance actually means this. Let me give you the definition. It is the spirit which can bear things not simply with resignation, but with blazing hope. Patient endurance has the idea of singing in the rain. Have you seen that? I have not seen that movie. I've heard it's a song, though. How many people do you know that can sing through their suffering? And this is what this church did. They would just continue to go. I can't hold myself up as your inspiration for enduring with joy. The deacons have more than once seen me despairing. And this week I went through an old prayer list and I had to mark off 50 names of people that used to come to our church. 50 names and no longer come. And so then in the last about four years they left. The first thought that I have about that is not, let's sing. It's like, man, that stinks. And you have different difficulties that you have to face. And singing is probably not the first thing that comes to your mind either. But a church that can learn to sing, and remember church is made up of humans, a church that can learn to sing through suffering is a church that I think endurance, endures. Because our world doesn't get that. And we're supposed to be different from the world, right? Our world sings when things are going well. Jesus is the example. He's the inspiration for us. Write this down. Expectation increases endurance. Expectation increases, and you could add joyful endurance. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. This church was taunted by others. They were tempted by Satan. Their homes were temporary, but they are endured with joy. David was crowned because he endured with joy. In, 19, I have a, in 1998, Disney released a movie called Mulan, which is about a Chinese girl taking her father's place to fight in a war. And as the army trudges to battle, they sing this song. For a long time, we've been marching off to battle. In our thundering herd, we feel a lot like cattle. Anyway, I won't keep singing. But he goes on and says, Like the bounding beat, our aching feet aren't easy to ignore. And then one tiptoes up and says, Think of instead a girl worth, I can't do it, a girl worth fighting for. And they say, what? He goes, that's what I said. A girl worth fighting for. And then they begin to dream about these girls and their hearts are lifted. Why? 
Has their trek gotten any easier? No, but their perspective has changed. My girl will think I have no faults. I love that line. <laughs> that I'm a major find. And then Mulan says, how about a girl who's got a brain who always speaks her mind? They're like, no. <laughs> nah. But what it, the point is, they're, they're enduring for something. We don't just endure to endure, like Eeyore. We endure for something, for the joy that's set before us. Jacob loved Rachel and he made it 14 years of labor feel like nothing. Paul loved Jesus and 30 years of beatings and imprisonment and difficulty. He said, I still press toward the mark for the high calling of God. And believer, you have no need to fear the future. And personally, as we're in the middle of political time, I can't, I can't even imagine how many dollars worth of ads I've thrown away that have come to my mailbox. But we're in a political time, and I would say watch out because I think fear of the future is the number one weapon that politicians use to make us depend on them instead of on our Savior. There is no politician who will save you. There's none. No politician is your Savior. And guess what? I don't need to fear the future because I know who holds the future. And it's Jesus Christ. It says one day he'll rule and reign and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Psalm 2, it says, kiss the sun because those of the earth set themselves against God and he laughs. Why? Because they're not a threat to him. Do you know that China is not a threat to God? Russia is not a threat to God. The United States is not a threat to God. Wokeism is not a threat to God. He's bigger than all of that. Stronger than all of that. And the church has to cling to him with a strong hand. So let's get to that. The church that holds on has plodding feet. They are an enduring church. Finally, they have a strong hand. He says, you have kept my word. You have held on to it. American Ninja Warrior is an obstacle course where contestants line up and try their skills, completing obstacles that test their coordination, balance, and grip. But the most common failure in American Ninja Warrior is the grip challenges. They often lose their grip. But the Church of Philadelphia had learned to hold on to what matters and they didn't let go. How many changes have you seen in the last 50 years for those of you who have been alive? Have there been any changes in the last 50 years? Did you ever think that you could carry a computer in your back pocket at all times? No, that wasn't even a thing. Okay, so lots of changes happened in 15 years. What about in 1,300 years? This church endured for 1,300 years. Can you imagine with me? Just go in your mind to the year 3,000 and 30. How awesome would it be if St. Anne's your Baptist Church was still around? But do you think that there are going to be some things that we'd have to hold on to and some things that would change? In a thousand years, yeah, there's some things that would change. What are the things that we have to hold on to? First of all, we must grip the supremacy of Christ. We must grip the supremacy of Christ. You notice in verse 7, he says to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true One who has the key of David. We must grit the supremacy of Christ. Seven times in this text, the word one is used. Jesus is the Holy One. He's holy or set apart or unique. He is unique in His birth. He is born of a virgin. He's unique in His life. He's sinless. He's unique in His death. It was for us. And He's unique in His current work. He's interceding for us. There's no other religion that has Jesus like we do. So point number A there, letter A, is we must grip the supremacy of Christ. The other way that we grip the supremacy of Christ is by saying that Jesus is the reality. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true one. If you want to find truth, look to Jesus. 
I actually had to kind of chuckle um, because if you follow any political leaders, I can't click here. You want to go to the next slides? We're down to point A. Whoa, never mind. I didn't get you notes. Sorry. <laughs> That's my fault. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is running, running on the platform of truth. And I had to chuckle because I was like, you don't get that. That platform is already Jesus's. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Honesty, that would have been a better word. But anyway, let it be. We must grip the priority of the word. We must grip the priority of the word. And we've already covered that. But the church that gets away from the word of God is the church that will always fail. Letter C, we must grip the necessity of holiness. He says to the one that conquers, we must grip the necessity of holiness. It is the conqueror who lasts. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And what is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We don't talk much about holiness, and I'd say one of the saddest realities in my life is that I know way more than I do. I know more about holiness than I practice it. But a church has to grip the priority of holiness. I know we're in a, we're in a day and age where holiness is not talked about that much. But we need to desire to follow Christ when he tells us what sin is and what following him is. We've got to turn from sin and turn to what is right. If you're trying to add some notes there, it's letter D is we, we grip the reality of reward. Jesus in this text presents three encouraging rewards. First of all, he'll take care of their enemies. Yeah. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. I was encouraged with these words. If we take care of God's work, he'll take care of our battles. Second, the reward is that he will keep them from the hour of trial. And many scholars believe that this is a reference to the tribulation, which is discussed in Revelation chapter 6, verses, chapter 6 through chapter 19. And there may be some here that don't know what the tribulation is, so let me explain. It's a period of seven years when the Antichrist rises to power, persecutes all followers of Christ, and we believe that the church will meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. And before this happens, we do not believe that you will go through the tribulation. This is called pre-tribulationalism. And uh, I've heard it's outdated, but look here in this text. It says they will be kept out of the hour of trial, and I think we see here the where, the what, the why, and the who goes through the tribulation. It says in verse 10, You have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. Where is it coming? On the whole world. The tribulation will come on the whole world. Why is it, or to whom is it coming? To try those who dwell on the earth. So those who dwell on the earth and the purpose is to try them. And also we see that it's a trial, which is the what of it. And I could go through a whole bunch of other verses, and I will later if you're interested, but there's a bunch of other verses that said the people on the earth are unbelievers in the book of Revelation. So I believe that believers are kept from it. Thirdly, he'll give them honor. He says he'll make them a pillar in the temple of his God. And when you're in a city that frequently struggles with earthquakes, something that lasts would probably mean a lot. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you lasting honor. So as we look at this text, um, I hope this church holds on. Do you hope this church holds on? I hope you do. Do you hope it holds on beyond you? I hope you do. I hope it holds on beyond me. 
What if I were here for another 50 years? Would we still need the Word of God? Yeah. yeah. Would we still need a strong grip? Absolutely. Would we still need an enlarged heart? Do you think we'll still need to love people 50 years from now? Do you think we'll still need to endure 50 years from now? Absolutely. Probably worse. So the question I have, we actually have some, several reflection questions. First of all, are you praying for open doors and walking through them? Jesus says, I'm going to give you an open door for gospel witnesses. Are you praying for them and walking through them? And then secondly, do you feel like less of a Christian because of your little power? If so, what does this text teach you? Or do you feel unloved? And what does this say is true about you? And is there a situation or struggle? Here's the big one. Is there a situation or struggle that God is calling you to endure with joy right now? Anything you're going through right now that God's calling you to endure with joy? And has, have you loosened your grip? Are you beginning to let things slip spiritually in your life? Beginning to tolerate sin in your life? Or beginning to tolerate a lack of love for each other? Bitterness maybe? Resentment? All these different things that can slip into us. The Church of Philadelphia endured and um, we can learn a lot from them and from their lesson. We're going to pray. I'm going to have the men come, and then we're going to take communion together. So, Lord, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for your word, and I ask that we would be a church that endures because we are people that endure. That we would love, have an enlarged heart, that we would love you, but then that we'd also go out. Give us opportunities this week to share the gospel with someone May we find more and more that we are hearing, hey, so-and-so placed their faith in Christ and now they're growing. We have a new brother in Christ. May we hear that more and more. And Lord, as, as you take people out of this world, as you move us, may we be replicating for your honor and glory. And now we come to communion where we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. That the truth that we hold on to is that Christ died for sinners. And that all who place their faith in him have eternal life. So may we celebrate the gift of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen.